Sea of Amana as I'm on my way up here. It's the first housekeeping thing we're going to take care of. See, I have a lot with me. Uh, one thing the military has taught me is be prepared for anything. So one of the things I'm trying, and the operative word is trying, is to do my sermon off an iPad, something I've never done before. Had my issues already this morning. I'm not that tech savvy. But just in case there's issues, we do have it on paper, so we did still kill some trees in the process just in case. Just told you guys, I'm going to do like a couple housekeeping things. I'm not that tech savvy, so I'm already going to apologize for the slides. I am not a PowerPoint guy. Again, you can thank the military for that as well. When I first got into the military, it was death by PowerPoint. They came up with that phrase for a reason. You would have guys that would teach classes that had no business teaching classes that would take like sections of what we were going over from the book and put the whole thing on PowerPoint and then read the slides. Oh, it was torture. So I'm not a PowerPoint fan, so it is what it is. So I did not do that. You're not going to hear me reading off of this and then, yeah, seeing the same thing on the slides. So that is good. Last housekeeping thing. I don't know why I'm a little nervous. It's not like my first time up here. It's just you guys, right? Wife tells me I got it. But I am tired. Told John when I emailed him on Friday, I'm burned out. So just like Brian over there, I'm preparing for a lieutenant's test in October, which uh, requires hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading. So some nights, along with Tara, she's back in school as well. We're going to bed like 1 o'clock in the morning and then waking up at like 4 or 5 and getting ready to do it again. So, so hopefully what I tell you this morning makes some sense, which I think it will. All right, so uh, I want to keep the theme of joy in the morning. So I titled this sermon, Blessed in the Morning. And hopefully as we uh, go through Psalms 1 and 2, you're going to see why I went with that title. Now, Brother John over there did well in leading us to the gate as we now prepare to enter the book of the Psalter. I use the language of gate purposely because many scholars refer to Psalms 1 and 2 as the gate or the two pillars to the Psalter. Now, prior to this series, I would have never imagined putting both Psalms together. But many feel that although topically the two Psalms share nothing in common, they form an introduction to the Psalter. Now, Jewish tradition holds to this, and many do not count these first two Psalms with chapters 3 through 41, which make up book one of the Psalms. So if you remember, last week John told us there's five books to the Psalms. They would not put one and two in that first book. They would start from chapter three, and they go from three to 41, and then book two would start, and so on, and so forth. And also many agree that the usage of the word blessed at the beginning of chapter one and at the conclusion of chapter two holds significance. So Seski just read chapter one for us. I'm going to give us a portion of that again. It said, blessed is the man or the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And then chapter two ends with, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what's interesting is that whether or not we hold to that both chapters form the introduction to the rest of the book, there are two major themes in these two chapters that will be seen throughout the rest of the Psalms. Those two themes are the centrality of Torah, or the teaching that comes from God, 
and the centrality of God's anointed one, the Messiah. Jewish tradition especially holds to this concept of Torah as it posits that the Psalter was broken into five books to reflect the five books of the Torah with the purpose of bringing God's people back to his word. So that's the intention of the Psalter. The Psalter is to remind the people as they worship of this great God and the word that he has provided for them, and it's to continually draw the people back to him and his word. And we, uh, as I told you, as we begin to dig deep into this Psalter, we're going to observe an emphasis on the teaching of Yahweh time and time again. Some examples, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So again, drawing us back to the teaching of Torah. We can go with Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. A familiar psalm to us, especially with this first verse. And then it's a psalm we uh, sing from time to time here in church that Brother Eric has blessed us with. It says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Or Psalm 112.1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And then finally, Psalm 119, which I'm going to read the whole psalm to you, all 176 verses. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but as we know, it is the largest chapter in the Bible, so we will not have time to read it. But time and time again throughout that psalm, the psalmist expresses the importance of God's law and his desire to keep it. So we see that thread of the teaching of the Torah time and time again throughout the psalms. The theme of Messiah is also sprinkled throughout the Psalter. Psalm 18, verses 46 through 50. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Or Psalm 20, verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with a saving of might of his right hand. Or Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. 
from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Afer. And again, Psalm 89, verses 20 through 21. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. So time and time again, you saw the word anointed or anointed one that is always synonymous with Messiah. Within the beginning of chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2, these themes are introduced and expressed through the word blessed. So I brought that theme to you in the beginning. We observe in chapter 1 that those who delight in Torah are blessed. And in chapter 2, those who take refuge in Messiah are blessed. So we see this theme of blessed interwoven within those two themes that we just talked about, right? The law of the Lord, the teaching, the Torah, and also in God's Messiah and his anointed one. Now in our culture, blessed like love is an overused word. I don't know what kind of circles you typically walk in, but you know, I can walk up to somebody and say, hey, what's up, man? And I'll get, yeah, I'm blessed, bro. I have no idea typically what that means. I don't know if they know what that means. It kind of reminds me of when I come home and I ask my kids, hey, how was your day today? It was good. Well, what was good about it? And guess what their answer is? No, the good parts. (laughs) Whatever the good parts are, right? So just like love, it's a word that we kind of abuse. And I had a laugh, you know, I was thinking of people who, and this is us because we just bought it, you know, have the little things that you hang up in your house, bless this house. You'll have the little bumper sticker on the car, bless this car. Where some people will take it to work, bless this office. Some people will take it a little further, bless this office as I have to deal with the people in this office. And we can go on and on and on. But when we overuse these words, we have a tendency to forget their meaning and therein equate it with something that it's not intended to be equated with or create a false or incomplete image of the concept that it's not meant to express. So in our culture, rather, our tendency is to equate the word blessed and another word used in this context, prosperity, with material blessings. So the more I have, guess what? The more I'm blessed, obviously, right? Isn't that how this works? The more possessions I have, the more blessed I am. The more prosperity I show, the more blessed I show myself to be. Thankfully, the Bible has a totally different picture of what blessed is. Because, you know, for some of us who might not know how we're going to pay bills next week, it's not good to put blessing with material blessings. Or for those of us who are one paycheck away from losing it all, it's not good to put blessing with material blessings. Or I'll put myself in the camp of probably three paychecks away. It's not good to put blessing with material possessions. So as we look at the Bible, especially the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, we see a, an array of individuals who are blessed, yet there, are, there is no mention of material blessings at all. 
starting at verse 3 in Matthew 5. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we're not the first people to equate being blessed with material possessions because obviously as we look at the disciples, they did the same thing, right? Here's where we can definitely say that there's nothing new under the sun. If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, after being told what he has to do to inherit eternal life, he walks away sorrowful, right? Who, who remembers that story? So he's told, after he said, hey, all these commandments that you just brought up, I followed them from my youth. And Jesus then goes and tells him, hey, then take all that you have, give it away, and come follow me. So that material wealth that we just talked about and tried to equate with being blessed, Jesus says, if you want to truly be blessed, give that all away and follow me. And then after that, as the rich young ruler walks away sorrowful, Jesus' response to that is, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, throws the disciples for a loop. The disciples, upon hearing this, are shocked because in their minds, being rich equaled what? Having God's approval, right? Obviously, this person has things because God has Bless them. So if God has blessed them, then, then you know, obviously they have God's approval. But Jesus turns this false thinking totally upside down. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying, because we have a tendency sometimes to do that. I'm not saying that having material wealth is bad, because I'm sure everyone in here has things, and we like the things that we have. Nor am I saying that in order to be favored by God, you must be a pauper. So I'm not saying you have to be poor in order to be favored by God. Nor am I saying that if you do have material blessings, that you're not blessed. But what I am saying is, is that it's wrong to exclusively look at material possessions and view them as a benchmark as to who is blessed and who is not blessed. If we do that, we're pretty much setting up a caste system within the church between the haves and the have-nots. We're also telling those who do not have much that, hey, guess what? I'm blessed and you're not. That's, it's a great way to open the doors of a church, right? Here's another one of my favorites, and I've heard this before. You have not, because, you know, a lot of times we have that tendency to take Bible verses out of context. Because you're not praying right. See, if you just prayed differently, then you'd have a lot. And then guess what? 
you'd be blessed. So, you know, maybe change the way you pray, and then, yeah, maybe you'll be blessed after that. Please don't be that guy that tells people that. All right, so then what does it mean to be blessed? I like how the Net Bible defines it. It defines it, it, defines it rather as follows. It says the word refers metonymically to the happiness that God-given security and prosperity produce. So in essence, the blessed man is happy or better yet, content. He's content. And Paul is such a great example of this. In Philippians 4, 12, 13, through, uh, 12 through 13, rather, he tells the Philippian church this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, or not that I am rather speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then everybody's favorite verse in the Bible, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And typically we equate that with being successful, forgetting the previous verses that I just read. So why is the individual in Psalm 1 content? Why is he happy? Well, the text provides two reasons. It begins by telling the reader that the individual is blessed because of what he does not do. Right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The blessed man is not conformed to this world, where his lifestyle and worldview are shaped by this world and its system. And herein lies what he does do and where his worldview is shaped as we now move forward to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. So his delight's not into the world. It's not in the delight of what the world can give him and the possessions that he can acquire. His delight is Torah, that theme that we brought up earlier. He delights in God's law. He's blessed because he loves Torah. He's blessed because he understands that the word of Yahweh is sufficient for life and godliness. He's blessed because he knows that delighting in the law of Yahweh is delighting in Yahweh himself. He's blessed because he knows Yahweh's word is proven and true, and the same God who delivered his people from the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is the same God who will deliver him. He's blessed because God has planted and watered him and made him a fruitful tree that he might glorify God and bless others. Now, as we look at the rest of Psalm 1, besides this blessing motif, we also have a contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. So after describing the blessed man and comparing him to a fruitful tree, verse 4 compares the wicked man to chaff that the wind drives away. Now, to give you a picture of what chaff is, let's go to the book of Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, so you thought we were going to like a, a Bible book, yeah, but yeah, we're going to the book of Wikipedia. Wikipedia, man, it just makes things like so easy. You can just like, you know, Google something and voila, there it is. I don't know, like the 
rightness of it, but that's a different story for a different time. So in grasses, the ripe seed is surrounded by thin, dry, scaly bracts, which form around the grain. Once it is removed, it is often referred to as chaff. So before the grain can be used, the husks must be removed. So the process of loosening the chaff from the grain so as to remove it is called, in a familiar word, threshing, traditionally done by milling or pounding. Separating remaining loose chaff from the grain is called winnowing, traditionally done by repeatedly tossing the grain up into a light wind, which gradually, blow, which gradually rather blows the lighter chaff away. This method typically utilizes a broad plate-shaped basket or similar receptacle to hold and collect the winnowed grain as it falls back. So as you look at different definitions of chaff, and this is why the wind blows it away, and this is why no one cares typically that the wind blows it away, it's also defined as fodder or waste. So if they were collecting it just to feed other animals. If not, and they lose it, they just lose it. It really has no purpose. So the godly man is considered blessed. The wicked man is considered useless. Why? Because he does not delight in Torah. And because he's not fruitful, he cannot glorify God, nor can he bless others. Now, what we're starting to see here is something that John brought up last week. So this is why it was important to pay attention and kind of introduce us to the Psalms and different things that we'll see in the Psalms so we're able to interpret them correctly. So he brought up the big word known as parallelism, right? That's what we're noticing here. But what we're noticing here is something called antithetical parallelism. So instead of comparing and building, we're contrasting and showing a difference between the two. So the contrast of the godly and the wicked concludes in verses 5 and 6 as we observe that the Lord knows the way of the righteous and some versions, and I like this version better, have guards the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. So as we conclude in looking at the difference or contrasting the godly from the wicked, God guards those who are his, but the wicked, they fall away, just like the image of chaff that we just saw. So that's chapter one in a nutshell. Obviously, I could have went a lot more, but having 45 minutes and seeing that some of you are already entering your happy place, we are going to move on to chapter two. I love the happy place, too. I think I've done some of my best work in my happy place, at least in my mind. So as we move to chapter two, we move to a scene where the nations are plotting and rebelling against God and his anointed one. So although this psalm is considered to be a coronation or royal psalm and also a messianic psalm, scholars cannot agree on a time frame or occasion as to when it was written, which kind of sometimes makes the interpretation a little more difficult. Now, Acts 4.25 attributes the psalm to David. So I'm going to trust that Luke was right and that David is indeed the author. But again, no specific time frame of David's reign is mentioned. And here's where... Unfortunately, critical scholars kind of take this stuff a little too far, so they kind of look at this as these are vassals revolting against God and his anointed one, and during the reign of David, there were no vassals. Obviously, they had the battles back and forth between the Philistines, but they wouldn't consider the Philistines as vassals. It was a lot of boring reading that I'm not going to subject you guys to, so you guys don't have to endure that. I'm going to move on. 
Now, verse 3 makes it especially difficult to determine because I just read that. So needless to say, this text reminds me, though, of Genesis 11. And I want to bring Genesis 11 up because, obviously, before this, we went over Genesis. And um, just looking at Genesis 11, and who remembers what Genesis 11 was? See how well you guys paid attention when Eric was preaching. Good old Tower of Babel, right? So we have the Tower of Babel. We have the people plotting, saying, hey, let's build ourselves a tower and go up to heaven. And if you remember the picture, the picture's kind of the same here. God is sitting in heaven just watching. Pretty much like, look at these fools. And the reason why I say look at these fools because, you know, we're going to see the next verse that, you know, God really sees us as folly. Because who are you, O oh man, <laughs> to revolt against me? Pretty much as I stand here sitting, watching all of this, I'm showing my sovereignty in and of itself. And yet, who are you to revolt? But yet, man does what? He tries to revolt. Anyway, this shows how hard-headed we truly are. And I could say that because I'm very hard-headed, and Tara can attest to that. <laughs> you aren't supposed to say amen to that. All right, so, uh, so we have that picture of Genesis 11. But I think it also paints a picture, more or less a spiritual picture, of man seeking to gain autonomy from God. So that kind of takes us back to Genesis 3, right? Man wanting this dependence from God, man shaking his fists at God, saying, you don't have any rule over me. But I love God's response to this plotting and rebellion. Verse 4, the sovereign God who sees all sits in the heavens, and what does he do? He laughs. Now think of our response. As you guys watch either CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or read the Daily Wire or watch The Blaze or whatever the case may be and hear all the things that the government's going to implement, hear all these things that the government's putting in schools to go against your kids, we go into a state of panic. And trust me, I say this because I've been there, and again, Tara can attest to this. I would be the dude that says, hey, let's move to Montana. Tara would be like, why would we want to move to Montana? If it snows really bad there, we can't get out. And I'm like, you're missing the point. If it snows really bad there, no one can get in. <laughs> That's what we want, right? So our, our re response typically is panic. We need to hunker down and now prepare ourselves to combat the evil overthrows of the overlords so they don't get us. That, that's typically us, and here's God up in the heavens laughing as little old man tries to overthrow God. This is the bad thing about this thing. I think I've lost my point, but here we go. God then displays his sovereignty even more by exclaiming in his fury that he has established his anointed one in Zion. So as you sit here and plot, as you sit here and rebel, God's up in the heavens and he's establishing his holy one in Zion. And after addressing the nations, the Lord then turns his attention to his anointed one, claiming him as his son and promising to him the nations as his heritage and possession. Now this language is reminiscent of 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that he will have an enduring kingdom through Messiah. 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you, you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And that's not the first time we've heard that promise. Again, going back to Genesis, we heard that in Genesis 12, where he says the same thing to Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. Again, imagery that we saw in Psalm 1. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, as we have the privilege to look back in Scripture, we know that this Messiah is none other than who? Jesus. The lion and the lamb. Now, many times as we describe him, we describe him as the lowly and meek lamb. But here we see him as a lion who crushes his foes. I think it was either last week or the week before where John brought up the C.S. Lewis quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy asks the beaver, beaver rather, if Aslan, who represents Jesus in the book, is a safe lion. And I love the beaver's response. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the beaver's response. And here we see in verses 8 and 9 that all who rebel against this king will be broken with a rod of iron and dashed into pieces like a potter's vessel. It's a picture of the great king conquering all of his enemies. Thus why God sits in the heavens and laughs. Because there's no plot, no rebellion that's going to thwart that from happening. Now, as we read descriptions of the Messiah like this, we can see why many people in the Gospels, whether it be the Pharisees or the disciples themselves, didn't get Jesus or his mission. Their vision of Messiah was one who was going to overthrow all the enemies of Israel and restore the kingdom and the Davidic throne forever. So when Jesus multiple times tells them that the kingdom is here and then in their minds doesn't defeat their enemies, they're taken for a loss. Now here you have this individual claiming to be Messiah. Why are we still then under the overthrows of Rome? That's their question continually. And we even see this as we look at Acts 1, right? Even after Jesus' death and resurrection what do the disciples say? Where's their mind still? Acts 1, 6. Hey, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Now must certainly be time, right? Because, you know, you did that dying thing and 
being resurrected again, please tell us now is the time that you're going to come and overthrow Rome. But what they fail to understand is this king is going to do more than just secure their physical borders and restore a physical kingdom. They didn't understand that he was here to conquer something much more in his first coming, that he was here to conquer the first enemy, which is death itself. And he does this by taking on God's wrath so that his people might have life and exclaim, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So our great king has already defeated our great enemy by conquering death. And I think sometimes we forget that portion. We just kind of look at Jesus as he does that as the sacrificial lamb. But kings come to conquer. And newsflash, Jesus has conquered death. And oh, by the way, all of us sitting here that believe in him are a testament to that. And that testament will be further realized later on as we go to the table and partake that our great Lord and King has conquered death on behalf of those who trust and believe in him. And as we'll look further in the chapter two, all those who take refuge in him. So Christ has defeated death and is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, subduing and defeating all of his and all of our enemies. And I love how the reformers put that. They, in the shorter catechism, talk about how is Christ the king, or how does he execute the office of a king? And it talks about him subduing and conquering all of his enemies. And then on behalf of us, he rules and defends us as he sits at the right hand of God. Now, the remainder of Psalm 2 shows us how the nations are warned to serve the Lord with fear and to kiss the son, lest he becomes angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly Kindled. So simply put, if we were to take those last couple of verses, repent and submit or perish. That's the king's answer to those who are in rebellion. You'll be crushed unless you repent. And I know it sounds like harsh language, but even as we move to the New Testament, we see the same thing, but we see it in a different way. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So everyone will be subdued. Newsflash, guess what? If you believe in Jesus, you've been subdued. Amen? If not, then we're kind of wasting our time singing, want your enemy now seated at your table. Right? We sing that, right? So we note that we were once his enemy. So we as his people were subdued. But we were subdued through repentance and faith. So before God did a supernatural work in you and regenerated you, changing that heart that delighted in sin, that heart that shaked its fists at God, <clears throat> that heart that said, I'm Lord of my own life, that heart that wanted autonomy, before we took that heart and then transformed it 
to a heart that now delights in him, to a heart that now loves his word, to a heart that now recognizes that without the blood of Christ, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. You are an enemy until he did that on your behalf. The Lord in his kindness revealed to you who he is and your need of him, and you responded in repentance, asking God to forgive you for your sins. And now we can kind of go back to Lucy and the beaver's response. And we can understand how, yeah, he's not a safe line. Because all those who fail to bend the knee and repent will be judged. But I love the other side of it. He's also good. Thus the warning. Because he doesn't have to give us a warning. I continue to look at Genesis 2 and then 3 and say, God never had to give us the warning or the opportunity to repent, correct? Because we have the stipulations in Genesis 1 and 2. Hey, don't take and eat. For when you do and die, you will die. But in Genesis 3.15, we see that first picture of grace where instead of crushing all of us for our sins, we have a promise of the one who is to come that will save us from our sins. And that is none other than the king that is referenced here in Psalm 2. Now, for those of you who have yet to do what I just discussed earlier, who have yet to come to know the king, I encourage you to do so. Because you're going to submit either way. (laughs) You're going to submit either way. It's like me trying to fight Mike Tyson. And that's even a bad analogy because we're, we're talking about the conquering king or me trying to fight John Jones. That would probably be a quick submission. So I can either submit before and say, yeah, I don't want any of this or I'm going to submit. So my encouragement to you is submit now. Why wait The Lord has you here today for a reason to hear this, to hear who he is and what he has done through his son. And if you need to hear more of that story, um, pastors, if you would please raise your hand. I encourage you to either seek out a pastor or someone that even brought you here today that you might hear more about this king, that you might eventually submit and repent and delight in him. Now, I think I'm running short on time. I have no idea what time we typically end. That shows you I'm paying attention when you guys usually preach. I'm not like looking at my clock. But I wanted to hit a couple of points for us to leave here with today because I kind of want to move this forward to what we're going to be going over for with the rest of the Psalms because John in the last two weeks brought up a lot, this concept of lament. And here's where we have an opportunity to cry out to God, to be ourselves before him. To take off the facade. You know, we do that very well in front of each other. Again, the God who sits in the heavens probably laughs as we do that even in front of him because he knows the true us. And he's just waiting for us to be our true selves. So if your faith is weak, he's waiting for you to cry out to him and say, Lord, help me believe. Strengthen my faith. If you're going through a period of complaint, which weeks ago, that was me. 
I think I told Eric while we're up there in the mountain, in that quiet, God specifically told me, hey, dude, you complain too much. Mostly about stuff that you have no control over. But bring that complaint to God. He's faithful. And that's what the laments are going to remind us of time and time again. So in time of lament, you can go on to the, uh, the next slide. Some things to remember. Times of lament, delight in God's word. I mean, John said, don't be that dude that uh, if you're there to comfort somebody, throw scripture at them. But this is your opportunity yourself to go back and just hide yourself there. Hide yourself there and hide yourself in God's word and let him speak to you. And just be comforted by those words that come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And just comfort yourself with what the Lord has to say. Secondly, in times of lament, take refuge in Christ. Lay at his feet, lay at his bosom, and just let him comfort you. Cry out to him. He is a God who hears, and he is a God who answers. He's a God who died for your sins and suffered a brutal death on your behalf. So for you to just cry out to him, And for him to comfort you is very small for what he has already done and has already endured on your behalf. And lastly, in times of lament, remember that you are blessed. Might not be the richest person in here, but I can guarantee you have all that you need for life and salvation. Now, I remember my mom used to always tell me this back in the day, and I kind of close with this. Because I think a lot of times, especially in our social media world, it's very easy to forget point three. Because we get on Twitter, or we get on Facebook, and we get on Instagram, and we see everything that everybody else has, and then we have that pity party where we say, oh, look what I don't have. But I remember this as clear as day. My mom would always say, there was a lady who always used to complain that she had no shoes until she met a woman with no feet. Amen. So I encourage you, stop looking elsewhere. Look to Christ and rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the joy of the Psalms. Just what a rich blessing each one of them are. And what great reminders they give us to delight in your word and to take refuge in your son. Lord, may we be reminded of that continually. And Lord, may we just come to you. May we not be afraid to be ourselves as we come to you either, Lord. May we just come in truth, bearing our souls and our hearts to you, knowing that you are the great comforter. And Lord, that you will just answer our cry in your time. May we be comforted in that. And may we believe it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to now transition, if I can get this thing to work. I'm going to call the uh, ushers forward. You guys can start preparing for communion. Redeemer Fellowship, as the ushers come forward to distribute the elements for communion, an ancient meal that Christians have partaken in for over 2,000 years commemorating the death of Jesus. Consider what you've heard this morning and consider the calling of Christ upon each of your lives.
The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, says, he says, take and eat. Come and feast, that we, we have an opportunity to come at Christ's table and remember what he has done on our behalf. So I, I encourage you that if you do know Jesus, to come and do that. I encourage you to lay your sins before him. Because one of the things that I think we forget is that as Christians, we're not sinless. We come to the table still struggling, still hurting, but God gives us an opportunity to come and remember what Jesus has done for us, and it's food. This is food for our souls. Um, if you do not know Jesus, I encourage you again, and this is the time to do it, to, to speak to somebody that you might know him and that you might partake and just enjoy this communion. Um, this should be, and this is why I love how we do this at the end, the highlight of the service. Because as we look at this, and we talked about that caste system, we talked about being blessed, all of us come the same. All of us who come to this table come recognizing that we were in need of a Savior and that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And because of that, our sins are covered. Because of that, each one of us is declared righteous, all because of what Jesus has done for us. Here's what Paul says in Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me. Father, each one of us recognizes that we have fallen short of your commands. We have missed the mark, Lord. You call for perfect righteousness. And if we're honest, we fail to meet that mark of perfect righteousness. And thus, Lord, our our need of a Savior. Lord, as we look back on, on our week, um, we just think of times where we didn't honor you as we should. We think of times, Lord, where sin was among us. And we, we fail to either recognize that sin or we harden our own hearts and fail to bring that sin before you. Allow us now, Lord, to be honest. Allow us now, Lord, to confess that, yes, we fall short, and we are dependent on you. And Lord, here's the beauty. When we do that, your word assures us that when we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive. May we find great comfort in that, Lord, that although we have sinned against you, you still love us, you care for us, all because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we partake, Lord, may we remember his great sacrifice for us and may we remember that more and more you are conforming us to his image. It's in Jesus' name we pray.